We're reading this morning from John chapter 14, verses 4 to 6. It on, starts on page 763 in your Red Pew Bibles. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is the word of the Lord. We're currently studying John chapters 14 to 16, which is what we call the upper room discourse. That's where Jesus was celebrating Passover with his disciples. And in these few chapters here, he's actually giving instructions to them. It's kind of like his last words to them. It's his, his last will and testament. It's his last training session with the 12. And of course, we know that one's going to desert, but eventually there'll be 12 again. And so we want to look at these chapters together. And this morning, of course, we're in chapter 14, and we want to take a look at what he's teaching his disciples, because we, we know that he came to earth as a sent one. He was sent by the Father on mission, and now he's sending his disciples, and by extension, we know that he's sending us as his disciples as well. And so we want to learn what we can from this. Why don't we pray together? Lord, as we approach this short section in John chapter 14 we find something incredibly profound. But only you by your spirit can enlighten it for us. Only you can reveal to us this morning and challenge us with the truth that we find here. And so would you make your word come alive for us? We trust that you will do that for us this morning. We humble ourselves before it because we know that it's your word you've given to us You've left us this incredible resource in how we can hear your voice and connect with you. And so we humble ourselves before it this morning, wanting to find ourselves in it and to hear your voice there. Amen. Seven years ago, we had hired a moving company, my wife and I, and uh, sent the goods out in front of us to Ontario here. We were on the West Coast and we set out in the middle of the dead of winter. And we were having a great time. We were driving through, stopping at hotels, long drives during the day. The kids were great. Stops at hotels, they could swim, be in the hot tub. And then we hit North Dakota. That is a wasteland at the best of times. Has anybody been in North Dakota? It's kind of like the prairies of the states, right? The states have the prairies, it's the prairies. Long roads, long flat highways. But the dead of winter, I have never experienced snow like we got hit with. All of a sudden, there was snow out of nowhere. And it came up real quick. And so that afternoon, driving through, we had aimed to get to Jamestown. And I had a schedule. I wanted to stay on it. We really had nothing to get to and nowhere to go. But I had a schedule, and we had to stay on it. And up comes this snowstorm, which by evening had turned to a full-on blizzard. And... In a few hours, we were caught in a whiteout. And I don't know how to describe it other than a whiteout because literally we must have had 20 or 30 feet of visibility. There were times that we were driving and I could see the snow would blow off the road a little bit and I could see maybe two yellow dotted lines at a time in front of me. 
So we were probably doing 15 or 20 kilometers an hour on this regional highway. We were trying to make our way, and there was times where I couldn't see a thing, and I actually didn't know whether I was driving on the road or not. Like, we, were, I, we could be in the ditch, I'm not sure, and then the wind would blow, and I could see yellow lines again. I'd be like, okay, we're good. And so, now, I don't, I don't want to make this a sexist thing, because I know, you know, some women might be like this too, but as a guy, like, I had to, I felt like a dad. I was responsible, right? So I had to hold it all together. And so, yes, I'm white-knuckling it, and sure, I'm, like, pretty stressed out, but inside, I'm like, we're going to die. Like, I think we're going to die. I'm scared. A, a dozen times, I think I asked my wife, so for sure we got blankets and candles and water, right? Like, we're, we might be spending the night here on the side of the road. I, I, and I, So we started looking for farm lights, you know, just through, could we see a farm light? We're crawling along this highway because literally I thought, if we see a farm light, I'm pulling in there, and at least we'll be on a farmyard. Maybe we can knock on the door. Who knows? They might even let us stay for the night. Like, I was kind of desperate at that point. And I realized in that moment, instead of being strong, what I should have yelled out loud is, I have no idea where we are, and I have no idea where we're going. I can't see a thing. So finally, we kept crawling along. We had still had enough gas, and so I, we, all of a sudden, it kind of broke from a whiteout to just a blizzard, and we could start seeing uh, some signposts coming along. And, okay, maybe there's a little n North Dakota town coming up. And, and so finally, we came to a stop light, and then we, got, we saw the stop sign. It had about six feet of drift on the stop sign. Literally, it was up to the octagon of the stop sign. And we rolled into town. And we could start making out some things. And there was a blinking light that said vacancy. And we're like, I think there's a motel. It's amazing. We pulled up in the motel at 3 a.m. And they, they let us stay for the night. They put us up. And we finally got warmed up. And there was no pool. But I had no idea where we were. I didn't know what town we were in. We were just in some random hotel and I feel like some of us at least in the past and maybe you're here even this morning and you find spirituality like you you feel like you're in a whiteout you don't know where you are and you have no idea where you're going and you don't know how to get there and I know there was a time in my life where I felt that way about spirituality and Jesus in the midst of that he consoles his disciples last week Pastor Kevin spoke on the verses just before that. And he consoles his disciples, and he actually tells them where he's going. He says, I mean, they're a little bit freaked out, too. They're getting anxious, too, because he keeps telling them that he's going to die. He has to die. And they're like, I didn't think this is the way this story was going to end. I thought we were headed somewhere. Now I don't know where we're going. And I don't know how, how we're going to get there if you're saying that you're dying. And he says to them, but... Don't be afraid. Don't be troubled. My father has lots of room for you. And so I'm going to prepare a place with my father for you. And, and if I'm going there, I'm going to come back to bring you with me to be where I am. And so Thomas, in our verse this morning, we start in verse 4. Thomas, some people call him Doubting Thomas. I just like to call him a realist. The poor guy gets a little bit of a bad rap. But I've, if I was in his shoes, I'd be asking the same question. Thomas says, basically says, Lord, we have no idea where you're going, so how can we know how to get there? And really, that's the experience of our earliest memories as humanity, our earliest memories back to the fall, is that we have this idea that there's divine, we have an idea about divinity, we have an idea that there's a higher purpose, we have an idea there might be a higher calling. There's something in the depths of our hearts that believes there's more to this life. 
There's a greater reality. But we don't know how to get from here to there. And in the midst of our striving, Jesus gives this incredibly outrageous statement. It's actually, it's earth-shattering. It's, it's an earth-shattering claim. In one sentence, Jesus here solves what I see as, as the three ways that humanity has striven over all of the millennia of history to kind of know this ultimate reality, to know the divine, to know there's three ways that humanity has striven to find deeper meaning and ultimate purpose. So firstly, humanity has striven to find divinity through religion. There's been religion for millennia. Secondly, humanity discovers to uncover the answers to life's deeper questions through philosophy. And thirdly, we strive for a better life more full life through what we call hedonism, which we'll explain in a little bit. But in this one sentence in the New Testament, in this one sentence, Jesus answers all three of those things. It's incredible, and the claim is is outrageous. But firstly, let's take a look. Jesus answers religions. So throughout history, the heart of humanity has known There's been the echoes of the divine within our heart, an inner sense that there's something more. There's someone more, maybe. And some of us, even in this room, you have an innate sense of the supernatural. Some people call it a sixth sense. Some people know that there's more to life than just our five senses. And over the course of history, all the major world religions, even the minor religions, have claimed that they have knowledge of some sort to connect to the divine, to know the divine, how to perceive the divine, influence it, even claim it for their own. And so, of course, atheism, which is more a recent development in human history, would reject any claim to that. But even agnosticism would say, ah, there might be a God, I'm just not sure about it. And atheism, let's face it, atheism, compared to the the history of humanity, atheism is a tiny speck. It's It's like a grain of sand on a, on a beach in Punta Cana, atheism is. I don't know why I'm thinking about Punta Cana, but stop thinking about Punta Cana right now. I know you all want to be there right now. That's a, maybe that's the point. But all religion, for time immemorial, a time that we can't even remember, religion has striven to, to know the, the divine, to know this God. And it would seem to me I've studied a little bit. I'm by no means an expert in world religions. But the little bit that I've read and the little bit that I've studied, it would seem to me that at least all the major world religions, the major ones, I don't know about the minor ones, the major ones are all about how we can work, what we can do in order to find the divine. If we read this or act this way or meditate that way or live a certain way, we can know God. If we worship this way or serve that way or pray another way, we can get closer to God. And don't get me wrong, Christianity for years in different ways and different paths of Christianity have taught that over the years too. Religion is not only a belief in and worship of a superhuman controlling power, but it's the effort to know or connect or even appease this God or gods. 
Have, have any of you come across this show on Netflix called The Good Place? Maybe you don't want to raise your hand if you had. There's this show, I think it first aired on NBC, called The Good Place. And this, this young lady all of a sudden finds herself in the afterlife. And there's this guy, Michael, uh, he's the guy in the awesome suit there, Michael aptly named. And he welcomes her in, he's sitting at a desk, and, and he s gives her the story of why she died. It's kind of hilarious. And then he basically says that, well, it's going to be a little different than you thought it was because all the world religions kind of knew a little bit about, it, about what it was going to be like. So every world religion was, was kind of right in a little way, except one time in 1970, there was this guy in Calgary who ate some mushrooms, and he got it 98% right. He knew the afterlife. It was amazing. And so he has a picture and a little shrine to that guy there in his office. But then he goes on to say that, Basically, how you get to the good place, quote-unquote the good place, is, is we're watching you all the time. He says, we've been watching you the whole time. And we've been seeing, you know, some, all the good things, and we add up the scores from all the good things in your life, and then we add up all the scores and the bad things in your life. And if the bad outweigh the good, or the, even if, you're, even if you're good outweighs the good, we only take the cream of the crop. So you're here, he says to the young lady, you're here because... Because you have been among the top portion of people who've done good in the world. Pull up the next slide. So all of these good things, we weigh all of the things in your life. And to be honest with you, as I watched the show, somebody suggest I watch it. As I watched the show, I thought, you know what? There are honestly a good number of people in this that I meet in everyday life who, who kind of believe this. We're not exactly sure if there's an afterlife. But if there was, I think I would need to be really good in this life to get there. And so I'm going to at least try to be pretty good in life. I think I'm going to try and be a good person. And the reality is, there's a lot of folks out there who feel like, yeah, I'm in a snowstorm. I don't really know what's ahead of me. And I don't really know where I'm going, and I'm not sure how to get there. And this is where Thomas's voice echoes in our own souls. He says, Jesus, we don't even know where you're going. How can we know how to get, how, the way? How do we know the way? And here Jesus answers all the religious striving for all thousands of years before by saying something astounding. He says, he is the way. He is the way. Now realize what Jesus didn't say. Jesus didn't say, I know the way, and I'm going to teach you the way, how to get to heaven. Jesus didn't say that. Jesus didn't say, all you have to do is wear a bracelet and ask, what would Jesus do to get to heaven? And then do those things. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus says something incredibly profound. He says, I am the way to know the divine. It undoes all the religious striving that came before Jesus. So what does this mean for you and I? Well, maybe you're here this morning and you haven't fully made up your mind about Jesus. But you're learning and you're interested. You're hanging out with other Christians. You, you want to know more. Please realize that this claim of Jesus is so audacious that you can't just believe Jesus is a good teacher. Because a good teacher would never say such a thing. A good prophet would never claim that he himself is the way to know God. So we can't sit here and think this morning that, yeah, I like what Jesus says. He's a good teacher. He doesn't leave us that option. 
Our culture is very pluralistic. We want to believe, and it's nice to believe, that all religions, all the roads lead to God. They all kind of have a different picture. And so if we just take a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and Jesus doesn't leave that option for us either. We, our culture wants us to believe that, yeah, Jesus is a way. Jesus is a way to know God. They might even give us that. And Jesus doesn't give us that. The Greek here, our eyewitness, John, who's a really good eyewitness. We've seen that over studying John for several years now. John records his words, and the Greek there is literally the. You can't put an A there. Jesus is saying, I am the way to know God. It's kind of astounding, but it leaves us this morning have to decide whether we believe what Jesus is saying or not, and whether or not we're going to put our trust in him to connect us with the God that our souls actually are always longing to connect with. Jesus is saying, I'm the one who can bring you to the afterlife safely. And so we must realize how important this was. This was not just a throwaway sentence. This was just, in this discourse, the disciples didn't just glaze over this one and kind of forget about it, about it. This was such a profound and impactful statement to the disciples in that room that they actually called themselves the followers of the way. They weren't called Christians. Other people called them Christians. We find that out in Acts later, that there's other people that call them Christians, and then they just start getting called Christians. But originally, they called themselves followers of the way. That's how impactful this statement was for them. It was incredible. So they knew that Jesus was saying something incredibly profound here and something hugely important. What else does it mean this morning? What it doesn't, what it doesn't mean is that we can think Jesus is just a good teacher. But what else does this mean for us this morning? It means that we have to give up trying to earn our way to heaven. We have to give up on the idea that religion is going to help us to get into the afterlife or to earn our way to God. As far as I can tell, a lot of the other major world religions are about trusting how we earn karma or, or how we, what we do to gain enlightenment or we, do, we need to do enough, like this show, we didn't need to do enough good to outweigh the bad in our life, and then maybe we'll get a shot. And here's, Christianity is remarkably different than the other world religions, in that Christianity is not about what we do. Christianity is about what Jesus did for us. It's a crazy invitation. And yet so many of us are still caught in the idea that we have to try to be good in order to earn our way to the afterlife or for God to be pleased with us. And so I, I want to invite you, if there's Christians here this morning and you still struggle with the idea of earning God's favor or you, you struggle with the idea that you have to be good enough to be a Christian, I, I just ask you to leave that at the cross this morning. Leave it behind. And realize that the invitation this morning is for to, to simply to know who Jesus is, to put your faith in him, that he's the one that can show who God is to you, and he's the one who's going to bring you into the afterlife. It's simply about putting your faith in him and building a relationship with him. It's very different than the other landscape, and that's why it's so profound what he says in this verse. So firstly, Jesus answers religion. Jesus is the way to God. 
Jesus is the way to God. He's the way to heaven. And so I invite you to put your hope in him and not your own actions this morning. Secondly, Jesus answers philosophy. So we as humans throughout history, especially started in the era when the Greeks became huge and dominated the world. Philosophy, here's a definition on the screen. Philosophy is the study of the fundamental nature of knowledge, reality, and existence. So philosophy is the study of what makes us tick, why we're here. Philosophy gives us this hope that, that it can answer life's deepest questions. That's the hope of philosophy. And in the 18th century, philosophy came up with this brilliant idea called the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment was that we as, we as humans, through science, progress, reason, we can actually lift ourselves up by the bootstraps, and if we try hard enough, we can become uh, the rulers of our own destiny. We can raise the sail and sail where we want to as a human race. And you would think that two major world wars and everything else that's happened in the 20th century would burst that bubble. Because there's no way that science, progress, and reason has solved our problems in the world. Are they valuable? Sure. Are they our hope? No way. And so we believe that science, progress, and reason will continue to bring us uh, greater and greater truth that eventually we'll gain enough knowledge that we'll essentially become like gods and control our destiny. That's what humanity wants to believe. Uh, and that was the rise of what we call in history modernity or modernism. And some people now think that we're in postmodernity or postmodernism. And then there's other philosophers that argue with that and say, we're not, in post, we're not post anything. We're still in modernity. It's hypermodernity. Modernity. It's like more modern than anything. And what that means, what they're saying by that, is we believe more than ever in science, progress, and reason. We haven't put those behind us. We believe that science, progress, and reason are going to give us the answers to all of our problems in the world. We put our hope in that. Paul Johnson, a British journalist and author, wrote in 1980, and he's speaking of philosophy, the quotes on the screen says this, it's humbling to discover how many of our glib assumptions, which seem to us novel and plausible, have been tested before, not once, but many times in innumerable guises and discovered to be at great human cost, wholly false. It's sobering, too, to find huge and frightening errors constantly repeated, lessons painfully learnt, forgotten in the space of a generation, and the accumulated wisdom of the past heedlessly ignored in every society and at all times. So this great hope held out by philosophy of the enlightenment that science and progress and reason can lift us out of this, this hole that humanity keeps sliding back into, it just doesn't work. What the Enlightenment, this philosophical idea of the Enlightenment, fails to acknowledge is what, what the Bible calls sin. And the thing about science and progress and reason is that it can't solve the sin problem. Sin means that no matter how, how hard we try to crawl out of this hole that we find ourselves in, that we keep sliding back. We keep sliding back. Now I want to say, 
science, progress, and reason can be beautiful things, and in the right hands, they can create beauty in the world. But they will never answer life's deepest questions. They won't get us closer to God. And so we're still left with that issue. So what does this mean for you and I this morning? Well, to be honest, I think some of us are enamored by new philosophy, new ideas. Where maybe some of you are shy now about your faith because you've had a professor in college or university tell you that your faith is unreasonable. Maybe some of you who are uh, here this morning love science and and can feel ashamed of your faith because, because the world doesn't see how science and your faith can actually uh, coincide. And so you're tempted to reject the faith of your childhood because, because you've been told that they don't coincide. Already in Jesus' time, Socrates and Aristotle were giants. People respected them. People reading their stuff. And into that highly esteemed philosophical world, world, Jesus says, I am the truth. The truth that you're looking for, the greater truth that's out there, the truth that might answer your deepest questions, how did we get here? Why am I on this earth? What's my purpose here? What am I supposed to do? Those deeper answers, Jesus is saying, I'm the answer to those questions. Again, he didn't say, I just, I know the truth, and I'm going to teach you it. He says something crazy. He says, I am the truth. And so I want to challenge us this morning. Philosophy can teach us some important things. I love philosophy. And science and reason and progress can be used for good in the world, but, but they're not going to get us out of the hole that we find ourselves in. They can't solve our sin problem. We keep falling back in. And so this morning, the answer to our deepest life questions, Jesus is saying, I'm the answer. I am ultimate truth. So Jesus is making a bold claim in this thing this morning. We We have to look at this verse and say, am I willing to believe what Jesus is saying about this? Am I willing to believe that To find the answers to life, I need to go to Jesus. It's a crazy claim, but we're faced with it in this verse this morning. Thirdly, so secondly, Jesus answers philosophy. Thirdly, in this one verse, Jesus answers the striving for a better life, which in North America, not traveled the world enough, but certainly in the West here, hedonism is that answer. And here's a definition of hedonism. Hedonism is the pursuit of pleasure, sensual self-indulgence. It's the ethical theory that pleasure, in the sense of the satisfaction of our desires, is the highest good and the proper aim of human life. And this permeates our culture, even our Canadian culture. This, we see it everywhere. It's around us. The promise is that if we satisfy our desires will lead a life of happiness and fulfillment. Many of us pursue it. It's the highest aim of life. We detest pain, so we medicate. We we get bored, and we're lonely, and so we go shopping. 
even if it's just window shopping. Our consumerism is driven by this, by hedonism. Our consumerism is driven by a need to, for sensual self-indulgence. And so the more stuff we attain, the fuller our life will be, right? That's what we are duped into believing. The more that we attain, the more full my life will be. And it's so true. Your garage is going to be fuller. Your basement is going to be fuller. You know, your life is going to be full of it because you're going to be duped. Because we all know that it doesn't make you happy. And yet we're still so tempted. We're tempted to ease our sorrows, to drown our sorrows in a bowl of ice cream. I am, at least. I have, you know, we, we are tempted to to get out of the doldrums of our everyday boring existence and, and do an all-inclusive to the Dominican Republic. I'm back on that. Man, I must need, I must need to get out of here. I'm going to hop on a plane tomorrow. I'm actually hopping on a plane tomorrow. But not to the Dominican. Headed to Burundi. That might be another wake-up call. I, in fact, I have a note here that says, uh, in fact, as I'm writing this sermon, I'm eating two really amazing chocolate chip cookies as a little break from the hard work. So, so we're trying to lift ourselves up out of the doldrums of, of everyday life by stuff, by things. A couple years ago, my brother and I, I'm, I'm sorry, I love going to all-inclusives, okay? So I'm going to talk about that again. My brother and I got to shoot a wedding in an all-inclusive, so our friend was flying down. She was doing a, a lo on-location wedding there in Cancun. And so as a team, we were like, yeah, we'll shoot that wedding for you. And then we picked up another wedding while we were there. It was great, so it actually paid for the trip. We had a fabulous time. It was, it's incredible. Like, you have all the food you can eat. I probably came home 10 pounds heavier. And you have all the drinks that you can have. And we're playing beach volleyball, and you're swimming in the pool, and you have hot tubs everywhere. And somebody brings you a drink. You just sit by the pool. Somebody brings you a drink. It's incredible. But it's not real life. It's crazy. And I, I just sat there realizing one day in the afternoon, and it wasn't just guilt, although I did feel guilty because my wife and my kids were at home. But, <laughs> but it wasn't just guilt. I did have a moment where I was trying to read my book, but I was even bored with that. And I was sitting there in my pool chair, and I'm thinking, man, like I'm bored with this already. Like this isn't even satisfying what I really need, right? I'm all relaxed. I got into the relaxation, it's good, but now I still crave something more. It's not doing for me what I really hoped it would do for me. And that's the empty promise of hedonism, that the more we consume, the more we eat, the more we experience, the more we do for ourselves, the more happy that we'll be, and it's a lie. Now listen, I don't want you to hear that I don't believe that rest and recuperation and recreation are not important things. They're important things within balance when they're supposed to be set in their rightful place. They're not bad in, in and of themselves. But when we believe that those things are what makes our life better, that will bring us up out of the boringness of our life, that will change our life to make it more exciting, we're just chasing emptiness. There's more to life than hedonism, and yet North America, we're so tempted by it and inundated by it. You know what? We often, we don't even notice it. I don't. 
I don't even notice it. It's like the water that we swim in. We're like fish. It's the water. We don't even know it. Water? What's that? That's how profoundly influenced by hedonism we are in North America. But here's the ultimate end, and we see it, and we just want to hide it. And so we put people like this in institutions so we don't have to face it. But the furthest end you take hedonism is people who are, who are incredibly, sadly in, uh, caught in addiction. I've worked with folks like that. Because again, the chief aim of their life has become, I need to satisfy this desire in my life. And so eventually this isn't enough, I need something stronger. This isn't enough, I need something stronger. I want to lift myself, my life up out of the doldrums of life and experience some pleasure. But the ultimate end to that is destruction. We see it. And in the midst of that, Jesus again, incredibly profoundly says, I am the life. I'm the life you're so desperately longing for. And so many people in this world want a better life. We want a better standard of living. We want to increase it. And in the New Testament, there's two words for life, in the Greek particularly. Bios and zoe. Everybody say bios. That's good. Zoe. Bios is our we get the word biology from. I'm just get, getting the blood flowing again. Thanks for joining me in that. Bios is where we get the word biology from. It's like the everyday, ordinary, eating, sleeping, waking up, going to the bathroom kind of life. Bios life. Zoe life is incredible. It's, it's life. It's like absolute fullness of life. It's life that is real and genuine. It's a life that's active and vigorous. It's a life that's devoted to God. It's, it's a life that not only increases the fullness of life here on this earth, but after the resurrection, it continues into eternity. And that's the word that Jesus uses here. He says, I am that kind of life. So if you're looking to lift yourself out, out of the boringness or the doldrums of your life right now, Jesus is saying, I'm the answer to that. It's a crazy and profound claim. And if we want that kind of life, a God-inspired, a God-infused kind of life that feels like life in all its fullness, we need to put our faith and trust in Jesus. And so I invite you this morning, what are the little ways that you can begin to set aside the patterns of hedonism that you see in your own life? What are some of those ways that you can set those aside and just make time to come to Jesus, to, to, to come to him to receive the life, that Zoe kind of life that you've been longing for. So in this one statement of Jesus claiming that he's the way, that he's the truth, that he is the life, we find him challenging all of our human assumptions, not only on how to connect with God, but how to have a better and fuller life. And his answer to all of that, his answer in order to know God and to, to lift ourselves up out of the pit, is to know him, is to find ultimate truth and real life, eternal life in him. And the reality is from this statement, we're actually faced with a huge dilemma. Because no human would claim these things unless he was crazy. Only God technically can claim things like this. A human could claim that he knows the way to God. 
that he knows truth about God. A human can claim that he knows about life, but a human should never claim that he is those things. In fact, there's another clue to what Jesus is claiming here, and he says, uh, he uses these words, ego I me, that's I am, and it harkens back to Exodus 3.14, where God announces, he reveals who he, am, he is, and he says, I am. And so these words Jesus echoes, this is the sixth of seven times in the book of John, that John wants us to realize that Jesus is making a profound claim here. He's, prof- he's, he's claiming that he is God. It's huge. And that really is the crux of this matter. Right from the beginning of his gospel, John, in chapter 1, verse 1, says, The Word, who's Jesus, was with God, and the Word was God. And so I want to invite you to decide this morning if what you truly believe is that Jesus is God. Do you really believe that Jesus Christ can answer life's deepest questions for you? If not, that's okay. There's no judgment. But I want to invite you this morning to consider the claim of Jesus. To realize that that sitting here this morning thinking, yeah, Jesus said some good ideas is just not quite enough. Because this is not just a good idea. This is a crazy claim. Jesus is claiming to be God. He's claiming to be the way to God. When we believe that Jesus is God, when we believe that he is the way, that he is the truth, that he is the life, then the whiteout lifts, the blizzard clears, the sun comes, and we begin to see things a little bit more clearly. Secondly, in closing, we realize as Jesus was sending his disciples with this information, This, again, was a way that he was sending. I'm telling you this because I want to send you with this. This is really important. And so what does that mean for us this morning? That means for us as Christians that our message about Jesus is not about bringing uh, a religion that we impose on people, right? So it's not about bringing religion to people. Our mission is also not about bringing a new philosophy to folks. Jesus was a great philosopher, and so we're going to bring you some great teaching That's not really what this is about either. And our mission, again, as Christians is also not to bring people a better way of life. Sometimes our testimonies say that, hey, if you trust in Jesus, your life was terrible, and now it's going to be great. Jesus never promised that. But what he's saying here is he's saying that I am the way to know God. That I am the answer to your deepest questions. And Jesus says that I am the life that will take you into eternity. It's incredible. Would you consider that with me this morning? Let's pray. Jesus, we come before you experiencing the gravity of these words that in this one sentence you're shattering all the ways that we as humans think we know how to connect with God how all the answers that we think we have 
We think we sometimes know how to live a better life. And you're shattering all those ideas. And you're saying that the only way to experience those things is to come to you. That you are the answer to those things. Jesus, would you remind us again what that means for us to put our faith in you, to put our trust in you, that we wouldn't trust our own actions, that we wouldn't, we wouldn't think that we need to earn our way into heaven or earn our favor, earn, earn your favor in any way. Lord, would you help us to set aside the way that we, we think our lofty ideas might save the world or change the world? God, <laughs> Jesus, you're saying here that nobody can save the world but you. Jesus, would you help us to set aside the way that our culture influences us even to try and better our life through, through selfishness and self-focus and pleasing ourselves? God, would you, would you help us to set that aside? We can't do that without your help. But we believe that you want to help us that way. We believe that you want to lift us out of the bios kind of life to give us this Zoe kind of life, a God-infused, a God-inspired kind of life, and we want to live that life, Jesus. And so we come to you Again, would you fill us with that kind of life? Lord, we want to keep seeking you. Would you teach us what it means to be in relationship with you, Jesus? We thank you for your word. Thank you for the faithfulness of John who wrote your words down. Thank you for the faithfulness of all the folks throughout history who carefully protected these words so that we might even have them here this morning for us. It's incredible. And so, Lord, as we go from here, as we continue to, to worship you in word and in deed, would you remind us that we're sent with a message. We're sent with the message of who you are, Jesus. That you're the answer. We pray these things for your glory and your namesake. Amen.